doors were barred and all the windows fastened down. I spent the night in sleeplessness, rose at every sound, half in hopeless sorrow, half in day. Would find the soldiers breaking through to drag us all away. And just before the sunrise, I heard something at the wall. The gate began to rattle, and a voice began to call. Hurried to the window, looked down into the street, expecting swords or torches and the sound of soldiers' feet. But there was no one there but Mary. So I went down to let her head. Jock stood there beside me. She told me where she'd been. She said they moved him in the night, and none of us knows where. The stone's been rolled away. Now his body isn't there. We both ran toward the garden. Then down right on ahead We found the stone and empty tomb Just the way that Mary said But the winding sheet they wrapped him in Was just an empty shell And how or where they'd taken him Was more than I could tell Oh, something strange had happened there Just what I did not know John believed a miracle, but I just turned to go. Circumstance and speculation couldn't lift me very high. Cause I'd seen them crucify him, then I saw him die. Back inside the house again, the guilt and anguish came. Everything I'd promised him just added to my shame. When at last it came to choices, I denied I knew his name. And even if he was alive, it wouldn't be the same. Suddenly the air was filled with strange and sweet perfume. Light that came from everywhere drove shadows from the room. Jesus stood before me with his arms held open wide And I fell on my knees, clung to him and cried Then he raised me to my feet as I looked into his eyes The love was shining out from him like sunlight from the skies Guilt in my confusion Disappeared in sweet release And every fear I'd ever had Just melted into peace He's alive, he's alive He's alive and I've forgiven Heaven's gates are open wide He's alive He's alive He's alive
he's alive and I've forgiven Heaven's gates are open wide He's alive, he's alive He's alive and I've forgiven Heaven's gates are open wide He's alive, he's alive, he's alive. All right. Well, here we go in our Grace Gift series, and let's go back to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12 this morning. And we've been here recently quite a bit, Romans chapter 12, but last week for Mother's Day, we were out of this passage. Yeah, I talked about moms, and now we're back in Romans chapter 12. We've talked already about the gift of prophecy, and the gift of ministry, the gift of teaching, the gift of exhortation, and the gift of giving. And so this morning, headed back to Romans chapter 12, and we're going to look at the gift of ruling today, or the gift of administration, you might call it. So verse number three, for I say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, Not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, and all members have not the same office, so we, being many, are one body in Christ, and every one members one of another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, Whether prophecy, let us prophesy according to the proportion of faith. Or ministry, let us wait on our ministering. Or he that teacheth on teaching. Or he that exhorteth on exhortation. He that giveth, let him do it with simplicity. He that ruleth with diligence. He that showeth mercy with cheerfulness. Yeah, this morning we're going to look at the gift of ruling. And let's pray. Father, would you... Uh, bless us now during this time. We thank you for each one who's here. And I pray that you would focus our hearts now around your word this morning. That you might be glorified in all that takes place here. Lord, we don't know the hearts of each person in this room. And there may be some who are not certain of where they'd spend eternity. We pray that you would work in their lives by your word and by your spirit today. And we pray that you would honor you. Uh, as we talk about the grace gifts once again, and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, one of the biggest responsibilities of equipping the church to be the heads and feet of Jesus Christ is finding harmony with all the various gifts. Um, how many of you like orchestra music out there today? Okay, pretty good. How many of you like bluegrass music? Oh, now we're getting somewhere, we're getting closer. Uh, Folks, I can't use country music as an example in church, right? (laughs) I knew we'd get the biggest response with that one, but that would be sacrilegious, right? Um, But but there's a a Christian band uh, out of Ireland called Wren Collective Experiment. I don't know if you've ever heard of them before, but they use an 
an odd collection of instruments to bring a unique harmony to their songs. And on some songs, um, they have a guy on the pogo stick. I'm not joking. Um, that's how they produce the rhythm for the song. There's this weird-looking pogo stick, and he pounces on the pogo stick while he beats this little can on the side of the pogo stick. And on the top of the pogo stick, there's a little cymbal bell. And so every time he bounces the pogo stick, there's this rhythm that takes place, sort of like a drum set, kind of, in, in a modified way. And, and so when he plays it by himself, it makes very little sense. But when you add in a couple types of guitars and a banjo and a mandolin and some voices, there's a harmony that sends out a musical message. And it's a beautiful message. It's the same way in the local church. If we all had the same spiritual gift, we would be like that pogo stick guy. But when you add in the variety God has made in His churchy orchestra, there is a beautiful harmony. And I'm sure you realize this already, but there are no two people alike. God does not make duplicates, only originals. And we've talked throughout this series about the great diversity in the body. That diversity only turns into harmony through a unity in the Holy Spirit. You know why Wren Collective Experiment makes sense, even though they're all playing different instruments? Because they're playing the same song. That's why it makes sense. They're playing the same song. They have the same music. They have the same intention. There's a submission that takes place. You have to submit to each other. Pogo stick guy has sometimes when he has to stop pogo sticking. And he has to let the guitar take the lead. You know, in the local assembly, we have to constantly work at submitting to the Holy Spirit and to each other. And that's when the music is beautiful to God. That's when the music is attractive to a lost and dying world. Sometimes we go out of our way to say, what could make us attractive to the world? I have to tell you this. The gospel is pretty attractive on its own. I mean, eternal life is fairly attractive, don't you think? We don't have to really add anything to it. And when we become the united, harmonic, melodic orchestra of Jesus Christ, we attract people to the kingdom of God. And, and so we have to be careful not to go too far out of bounds on, on trying to attract people. But let, let's say that God provided the people and the resources we'd need to think about building a new worship center. Different people, each with different spiritual gifts, would want different things in that facility. In fact, if you asked, if you could have one thing incorporated into a new church facility, what would you choose? And a person with the gift of prophecy might say, I want plenty of altar space. And for the altar to be just the right height for sinners to bow down in repentance to God. Because a prophet proclaims truth and expects a spiritual response. person with the gift of ministry might say, I want a nice janitor's closet with a mop sink and plenty of shelves and mop and broom hangers. Because the person with the gift of ministry wants to serve. Um, the teachers might say, I want a nice big dry erase board 
in each of the classrooms, along with a video projector for teachers to use. Now, they have got even past video projectors. When we went to school, they had these things called chalkboards. You guys remember those? Yeah, chalkboards. And those are pretty far out of date. Now they have this thing called a smart board that's electronic, and a, a student can come up with this special smart pen. Apparently it makes kids smarter. I have to, I've looked at studies that say kids are dumber than they've ever been. And at, at my house, it is confirmed to be true sometimes. But, but anyway, I'm just teasing. I'm totally teasing. We, we are way down on the list in math, though. I know that as Americans. And, but they go up to this smart board with this smart pen thing, and they draw on the smart board, and all of a sudden it comes up on the screen what they're doing. And uh, it's amazing, these smart board things. But teachers would say, hey, that's what I want. I want ways where people can learn. Somebody with the gift of exhortation might say, I want a nice conference room or lounge where a person can sit down privately with another brother or sister to encourage and counsel. Somebody with the gift of giving might say, I want space for a missionary closet so that we can stock helpful items for all our visiting missionaries and their families. Person with the gift of ruling, today's topic. I want plenty of storage space. A place for everything and everything in its place. And everything has to be labeled and certified and organized. How many of you are ultra-organizing types? God bless you. God bless your spouses if you have one. Um, but then there's the person with the gift of mercy. person with the gift of mercy might say, I want a cry room adjoining the auditorium for those poor mothers with noisy children to go so they can enjoy the service without being embarrassed. And, and so everybody's looking at this a different way. And we all have perspective in how to make things work. But we have to play from the same musical score or it won't make any sense. And in this series, we have repeatedly said that every believer has a spiritual gift that he or she is accountable to God to use for his kingdom and glory. God wants us to know what they are and how to use them. Today we're going to look at the gift of ruling. And I know that as you hear that word or you got your notes out from your bulletin and you saw the word ruling, that seems like such a harsh word. I mean, in modern society, when you see the word ruling, you almost think that there's some type of submission that's going to have to take place. And people don't like that word. Pastor, I don't want anybody to rule over me. And it's talking about leadership. Ruling is talking about influence. It's talking about having direction and administration here in the local assembly. Look, if we're going to keep the scriptural mandate to let all things be done decently and in order, it will require some type of leadership under God. But this ruling word implies that we're going to have to obey someone or something. Dr. Bill Rice started the Bill Rice Ranch in Tennessee, and it's still a fantastic youth camp after generations of use. And uh, old Dr. Bill told this story about a farmer that he went to visit while he was holding a revival meeting in upstate New York. And he invited the farmer to come and hear him preach that night. 
The farmer said, well, I'll tell you how it is, preacher. When I was a boy, my parents made me go to church all the time. And I resented their making me go, and I got so sick of church that I decided I would never go again after I was grown and my own boss. And old Dr. Bill looked him straight in the eye and grinned and said, Now tell me the real reason you won't come to hear me preach tonight. But of course, that riled the farmer up a little bit. And he said, you calling me a liar? I mean, grabbing a pitchfork. You know, you don't call a farmer a liar. And, I, and Dr. Bill said, look, I know you're lying, but hear me out before you throw the pitchfork. All right, hear me out before you get all sore about it. When you were a boy, there were a lot of things your parents made you do that you didn't like. They made you take baths. And most little boys don't really like to do that. Right? They made you comb your hair. They made you wash up before you came to the table. They made you go to school. They made you do chores. Now that you're a grown man and your own boss, you still do all those things. You still work. That's obvious. You're a successful farmer. You still wash up for meals and take baths, probably more than you did back then even. Your problem isn't what your parents made you do when you were a boy. Here's what he told him. He said, listen, your trouble is that you have a wicked heart. That's your trouble. You have a wicked heart. And he started to say, what you need to do is, and the farmer said, hold it, hold it, hold it. And then listen to what he said. He said, one sermon a day may be all I can take. And since I'll be at church tonight, I don't want to hear a sermon this morning. What time does church start tonight? See, the farmer's excuse for not being involved in church was a big, fat lie. And the excuse most people use for not following godly leadership in their lives is also a big, fat lie. See, people say, I don't feel like listening to anybody tell me how to live my life. Well, when it's zero degrees outside and there's a fire on top of your house... You don't feel like going up and putting it out, but I bet you will, right? If somebody lights the back of your pants on fire, you probably don't feel like running, but you will. You'll run fast, and you'll run far, and and we do things we don't feel like all the time. It's common sense. But spiritual sense says that we all need Vision and direction. And sometimes we need to have somebody walk alongside of us and say, look, there's the way, walk in it. In fact, that's a biblical passage. Did you know that? Look at Jeremiah chapter 6. Jeremiah chapter 6. And, and just like a couple of weeks ago, the introduction is long today, but the sermon will be short. Right? Promise. Got to get that one out of the way. Jeremiah chapter 6. Jeremiah told these people some things, but they didn't want to listen. Look at Jeremiah 6, verse number 15. Now, this is kind of the generation we live in, folks. Here's what it says. Were they ashamed when they had committed abomination? Nay, they were not at all ashamed, neither could they blush. You know, a society 
that can no longer blush is not a good place to live. We are in such a society. There are not many things that I could say today that would shock the people of the United States of America in this room. In fact, there are 12 and 13-year-olds who know more about stuff that they shouldn't know about than ever before in history. You couldn't shock them because they've seen it on somebody's Facebook page or some rap singer sang about it or some woman sang about it, some bisexual woman who they have a poster of on their wall who's singing songs about all kinds of stuff. You can't shock people. Jeremiah's day come to life again. They weren't, they didn't, couldn't blush. Look what he said. Therefore they shall fall among them that fall. At the time that I visit them, they shall be cast down, saith the Lord. Now here's what God said. This is the response. He said, look, you can't blush anymore. You are worshiping abominations. You're fine with whatever goes in society. And by the way, that's exactly where we are. You, could, you cannot, if you're in a leadership position in America today, you cannot speak the truth any longer about what God says about sin without having the entire news media or the entire society come against you. It's happening day after day after day in our society. And if you think that our government is getting better, please read a newspaper once in a while. Please. I know that there are low-informed voters in all parts of America, but God's people should at least know some of the things that are taking place. And if you'd pay attention, you'd notice that there's not one branch of our government that is without scandal right now. They're all over the place. And it's Jeremiah chapter 6 all over again. Can I tell you mainly why it is without getting too political? There's no leadership. Nobody's willing to stand up and say, I'm in charge and that's my problem, and it shouldn't have happened, and I'm going to take care of it. We have leaders who are standing up and saying, well, I just heard about it from the news media. I just heard about that scandal. It doesn't really have anything to do with me. Listen, we need leadership more than we've ever needed it. Not just in our country, but in our churches, in our families. We need people to stand up and say, I'm in charge because God placed me there. We need some dads to stand up and some moms to be the parent in the home and not let the 12-year-old run over you and pull you into the culture. Families are being dragged, screaming and kicking, into our culture because there are no leaders in our homes. And then we look back two or three years later and we say, what happened to our family? What happened to our innocent little 10-year-old kid? Here's what happened. There was no leadership. There was no mandate where God said there has to be a ruler and there has to be submission and there has to be obedience. And because we didn't like those words, we cut them out of the Bible. Or we made a new version that made them softer. Instead of saying, obey them that have the rule over you, we said it something like this. If it's convenient, do what the person who has directed you has asked you to do. We have watered down leadership in Christianity. Is it any wonder that it's watered down in our country? We never read verse 16 yet. I got to preaching in the introduction. I just can't imagine that that happened. 
We haven't even got to the sermon yet. Verse 16. Thus saith the Lord, Stand ye in the ways, and see. Get some vision. And ask for the old paths. Where is the good way? And walk therein. And ye shall find rest for your souls. Look what it says next. But they said, We will not walk therein. Spiritual tragedy takes place when a person or people determine that they will not walk in the path that God has provided. That's exactly what this is speaking of. And if we're not careful, folks, what we do is we say, well, when they talk about the old days, they're just talking about systems or traditions. You know what they're talking about sometimes? Truth. Truth. See, when we get rid of all the traditions that have been held for hundreds of years, you know what sometimes gets lost in that? We lose truth. We lose lose people who will stand up and say, black and white, right and wrong, line in the sand, don't cross it. We don't have enough people who will say that anymore. We move the line. Or we water the sand. And God says, this is the way. Walk ye in it. They said, we're not doing it. We're not going to walk therein. Can I submit to you just as this last thing in the introduction? If you refuse to walk in the way that God has planned for your life, it will not be a happy ending. Can't be. It goes against every principle of His Word. So today we're going to talk about ruling. The naughty, horrible word, ruling. Let's define it first. In your notes, defining the gift of ruling. Got really quiet during the introduction. I don't know what happened. Maybe we can spice it up a little bit in the message here. The Greek word for ruling is proistemi. And it describes one who serves God and advances the church by leading or delegating or organizing or promoting. The interesting thing is that this Greek word, and this was so neat when I saw this, this Greek word was also used to describe someone who was piloting a ship. They're piloting a ship, steering it safely through the rocks and the reefs and the shallows to reach the port. A person with this gift may be very orderly, even nitpicky. How many of you know somebody who's nitpicky? I mean, if you picked one adjective to describe this person, you would say they're nitpicky. Right? They're just nitpicky. And it could be that they have this gift. But that's not a negative thing. Um, How many of you have ever been on a cruise ship before? Ever been on a cruise ship? That's a big old thing, isn't it? Um, How many of you, when you're on the cruise ship, you ever got up early um, when the ship is going into port and getting ready to, you know, embark everybody for the day to go out and do their excursions and have fun? Have you ever gotten up early to watch the ship go into port? That's some serious business. They don't mess around with that. They, They often will have not just one, but two pilot ships who will take the bigger ship through these little channels that you can't even see. You're looking down like, looks deep enough to me. 
But the displacement caused by a 12-story vessel, it's pretty big. I'm no scientist, but I think it's pretty big. And you know, there are a lot of ships that have sunk because the pilot discounted the road ahead or the water ahead or in the case of the Titanic, the iceberg ahead. He said, oh, we'll be okay. Just let's turn a little bit. We'll miss it. And uh, the gift of ruling in families and in local churches is so significant because God has placed right here in this local church people to help steer the ship. You know what? We, we get to thinking about, oh, well, that's the pastor. Not always. You know, there are a lot of people here this morning who have the gift of ruling. Some of you, your spouse knows that you have the gift of ruling. Right? They're, they're going like this right now. The gift of ruling. So we're, we're going to discuss it and figure out more about it, but that defines the gift. Let's talk about discerning the gift of ruling. Discerning the gift of ruling. How do I know if this is my spiritual gift? Look, just because somebody has called you bossy before doesn't mean you have this gift. Right? I won't ask if anybody's ever called you bossy. Um, but there, there's a difference between nagging and spiritual ruling. <laughs> oh, perfect. It is perfect. The guy, he has impeccable timing. We don't even have to line it up anymore. Um, but a believer with this gift of ruling exhibits a God-given ability to take a Herculean task, a massive task, and reduce it to a well-organized activity. But this isn't a natural ability. This is not a Fortune 500 CEO. This is the local church. This is a God-given ability to break down major goals into smaller achievable tasks. And it's always related to the kingdom. Our life groups looked at Nehemiah's leadership this morning. Here's a guy who had no experience as a leader or as a builder. And yet he came into a broken down city and led them to rebuild the walls. Big walls. Walls that had walking paths and chariot paths on top of them. You know, some of the ancient cities, not Jerusalem, but Babylon, they used to have chariot races on top of the walls, ten chariots wide. Ten chariots wide. The walls were 40 feet high. Can I just tell you, you didn't want to be in lane one or lane ten. I mean, if somebody had a blowout on their chariot wheel, whoo, you're down. You're down for the count. But Jerusalem, this wasn't just some little, oh, let's frame a wall up real quick. These are massive stone and brick walls that are huge. And Nehemiah comes in. Listen, folks. They rebuilt and repaired the walls in 52 days. You understand what I'm saying? This is thousands of years ago. They rebuilt and repaired the walls in 52 days. And obviously, God miraculously provided the resources they needed. But there had to be a physical leader. 
And Nehemiah was the guy who took the elephant and broke him down into bite-sized pieces. If you ever read Nehemiah 3, you'll see a systematic sequence of wall sections and gates and groups and individuals and tools. It's really an amazing thing. Hey, look, I, did, I realized that Nehemiah didn't have to deal with the city of Caldwell. Um, actually... His detractors are probably much worse. But, but he rebuilt the wall of, of a city in less time than we have seen buildings go up on our own property. And we live in 2013. And we have man tools. Nehemiah, while they're on the wall, half of the people are holding a spear or a sword in one hand and a tool in the other hand. Because they had so many enemies. They had so many people who were against what they were trying to accomplish. Can I just tell you in your spiritual life, if you don't have any enemies, you're probably not doing anything for God. And if everything's status quo and the boat never rocks and things are great and you never feel an attack from the enemy or the world or your flesh, it's probably because your flesh is in charge. Your flesh is ruling the day already. And God wants us to be cognizant of this area of leadership. The temptation that comes with uh, the local church sometimes is to take any warm body and to put him or her into a position, but that doesn't move the work of God forward. See, this gift includes insight in assessing the abilities of others and positioning them in fitting areas of service. And there is a fitting area of service for every member of the body of Christ. God wants every member to be a minister in the kingdom. The truth is, though, when we do it the wrong way, sometimes that moves the work of God backward. When we put somebody in an area where God didn't want them to be, it moves the kingdom backward. And every local church is susceptible to this. Every leadership team is susceptible to this. And so leaders are important to the body. And, and so there's a discernment factor there. Let's talk about the dangers of the gift of ruling. The dangers. Pastor, what would happen if someone with the gift of leadership ever lived in carnality? Well, I can tell you it's not a pretty sign. Spiritual abuse is disgusting before God. And people becoming dictators over the body of Christ is also disgusting to God. He's the head of the church and the savior of the body. And leaders in the local assembly are just parts of the body. In fact, the pastor himself, or the New Testament also calls him an elder or a bishop. He's just an overseer. He's just an under-shepherd. Jesus is the good shepherd who gives his life for the sheep. The Holy Spirit is the one who directs us in our lives. And when we try to usurp that authority and become the Holy Spirit for another Christian, we are on very shaky ground. It's not what God wants in our lives. And a believer with this gift, this gift in particular, really, ruling, who's living in carnality, may view people as resources instead of as individuals. If we're going to accomplish tasks, we obviously need people. 
But the people of God are not just dispensable entities. They are fellow servants. They are the one another of which the New Testament speaks. And a ruler could use people to accomplish personal ambitions. A ruler could take charge of projects that are not God's direction at all. To get things done, there has to be some form of delegation. But a ruler can over-delegate and not be sensitive to the schedules and needs of others. A ruler could also show favoritism to those who appear to be more loyal. There are a lot of traps for rulers. One that I've noticed that sneaks up on you sometimes, rulers can overlook serious character flaws in those who may be valuable workers to them. If we had somebody who we really want to succeed, we could overlook some major character flaws. And here's the, here's the unfortunate thing about that. Character flaws that are overlooked never go away. Character flaws that aren't taken care of when they're tiny little cracks become major cracks. And cracks in character always show up. You can hide them over for a while, but they're going to show up. You you guys read about, um, some of you news buffs, do you read about the big sinkhole that um, swallowed up a guy down in Florida a while back? And it's kind of how our lives are. We have this tiny little thing, oh, that's not that big of a deal. And nobody takes care of it. And then it becomes this little bigger crack. You've seen a crack on the sidewalk, the sidewalk goes like this. Nobody takes care of it. And it just keeps going. It swallowed the guy's whole house. It swallowed him. They couldn't find him. He's gone. And sinkholes will swallow people whose character flaws have never been pointed out. Or never taken care of. And so can I just tell you to be thankful when somebody points out a character flaw on you? Be thankful. Say, thank you so much for sharing that with me. I hope that will save me from trouble down the road. Is that what we normally do? Mm -mm. What do we normally do when somebody points out a character flaw on us? We get defensive. And we play the blame game. Right? Hey, it's not a big deal. We had a... Is Dawson in here? Love this boy. Can I tell a story on you? Go like this. Go like this. Submit. <laughs> Obey. This is a fresh story. It's so good. Such a perfect illustration, and God gave it to me yesterday through young Dawson. Um, Cody and Dawson are mowing some lawns and trying to raise some money for India. And one of their customers, me, had them out mowing yesterday. Isn't that neat how that works out? You've got to pay for the equipment somehow. So, so they're out mowing, and um, Cody normally mows the front yard, and then he trims and he runs the blower. And uh, then Dawson mows the backyard, and it all works out about the same. Well, his big brother bailed on him. He had already mowed the backyard, and Cody had trimmed the backyard and the front yard, and then Cody went inside. So Dawson came up to me and he said, I'm angry about this because he didn't keep his end of the deal. And he was talking business with me. What are we going to do? And I said, well, you've got to work it out with your business partner. You know, we're 
I was trying not to pick sides. And so he decided that he, of his own initiative, was going to mow the front yard too. Good thing, right? How many on board with this? Great idea. Mow the front yard. The only problem was he decided to mow the front yard angry. He's going to mow the front yard, but he's going to mow it angry that his brother's not doing his job. So he's mowing, and I'm over doing some stuff in the driveway, and all of a sudden I hear this horrible sound come from the lawnmower. So I run around the corner, and I thought the end of the world had taken place. It wasn't the end of the world. He hit a plastic bag, and it blew up. It made all kinds of sound. So he stopped the mower, and we had a discussion about it. And here's what he said. I want you to note these words, because they're so huge. He said, I tried to miss the bag. <laughs> I love that. I tried to miss the bag. And I said, okay, wait, stop, hold everything, let's rewind. Instead of trying to miss the bag, why not pick the stinking bag up? <laughs> said it in my best drill sergeant voice. Now, here's what he proceeded to tell me. And this is where... I I wanted to share with you because it's such, uh, you can't make this stuff up. He said to me, it's Cody's fault because he didn't mow the front yard. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? That is the perfect illustration for talking about cracks in character. Who was the lazy who didn't pick the bag up? That would be this man in the blue shirt, this young man. Right? They both have blue shirts. <laughs> it's too good. Um, he didn't pick the bag up, but instead of saying, you know what, next time if I see something, I'm just going to pick it up before I run over the McDonald's bag with the two-week-old cheeseburger in the lawn, and it's all over. Pick it up first. By the way, the cheeseburger after two weeks is still fine. You could have eaten it. In fact, you could have left it in your car for a year, and it would have been fine. Um... I don't know how we got there, but, but the crack in character was that he was too lazy to pick the bag up. Instead of saying, I own that, and I'll fix it next time, he totally shifted his crack in character to someone else. That's exactly what we do in our lives. When somebody says to us, hey, have you ever thought about this in your life? Here's one of the questions I love to ask. If you had a crack in character that would someday ruin your life, would you want me to tell you about it? Then just smile. You know what the person always says? I guess. Or sometimes they say no. You know what the Bible calls that person? Fool. Fool. Because they have no discernment. And sometimes I've been there where somebody tells me something, I'm like, Oh, that's not real. That's not my problem. That's not my character issue. It's because of that guy. It's because of this thing. And how dare you say that to me? And you know what God wants to do sometimes? Stop and listen. Because there is a crack in your character that is someday going to blow you out of the water. And it's going to ruin your family. And it's going to ruin your marriage. And it's going to ruin your kids. And it's going to ruin everything around you. Because nobody would point it out to you. I've had friends in ministry who are no longer in ministry. 
they're no longer in their family. They're no longer in church because nobody ever said to them, hey, that crack in your character, you should take care of it. People just overlooked it. and said, oh, it'll go away. He'll get better. No big deal. But a leader points it out. Now the danger of this is that a leader doesn't point it out. That's what we're saying in the dangers. He could overlook a serious character flaw. And if you're thinking you might be a ruler, could I give you some advice based on my own pitfalls? Make sure you stay responsive to the suggestions of others in the body of Christ. Yes, some people are just trying to be critical of your leadership. But most of them, do you know most of them are trying to help you? Most of them are trying to protect you and protect the church and protect your family. Rulers, another thing that they could do, they could fail to give proper explanation to those around them. And they could also fail to praise the people around them for their diligence and effort. I'm sure that you can see that ruling, when used according to God's purpose, is huge to the local church. But when it's used outside of God's purpose, it could be devastating to the flock of God. Let's talk about, lastly, on a high note here, the delights of the gift of ruling. The delights of the gift of ruling. I know we've said this statement in every sermon of the series, but it's a huge statement. Jesus was the model for all spiritual gifts. And when we use the gifts after his example, it's a great blessing to the church and to the kingdom. Go with me to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6 in the New Testament. And we're finishing up talking about the delights of this gift. Mark chapter 6, verse number 7. And he called unto him the twelve, and began to send them forth by two and two, and gave them power over unclean spirits. And commanded them that they should take nothing for their journey save a staff only, no scrip, no bread, no money in their purse, but be shod with sandals and not put on two coats. And he said unto them, In what place soever ye enter into a house, there abide till ye depart from that place. And whosoever shall not receive you nor hear you when ye depart thence, shake off the dust under your feet for a testimony against them. Verily I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city." And they went out and preached that men should repent. And they cast out many devils and anointed with oil many that were sick and healed them. So, so this is so interesting because Jesus systematically sent his disciples out in ministry. I mean, he sent them out in direct numbers. He said, you're going to go in these groups, and here's what you take, and here's what you don't take, and here's what you do when you get to the city. He laid the whole thing out for them systematically. Certainly they were individuals, but he sent them out as teams for the purpose of the bigger team. By the way, if you're going to do anything in the kingdom of God, being on a team is the most important thing that could possibly happen. Because when you work alone and you isolate yourselves from the body of Christ, you will wither. I hear people say, well, I don't need to go to church anymore. I study on my own. How's that working for you? Because when I walked up to your house, what I saw was a stack of 340 Budweiser cans. I'm not judging you, but there may be a problem here. 
Well, I study on my own. I watch the TV preacher. How's that working for you? See, God wants you attached. God wants you attached. When the Bible says, I'm the vine and you are the branches, I have never in my life seen a branch out in my yard unattached that was doing very well. Have you? How many tomato plants do really great for a week unattached to the plant? Doesn't work well. But Christians think they can do it. And Jesus said, hey, get on a team. In fact, I will assign you to a team. Loudmouth, Peter, right here. Come over here. Beloved, John, right here. You two work together. Hey, Doubting Thomas, right here. Come over here. Go with Thaddeus. He's a little bit more, you know, and he assigned them. He told them where to go, how to go, when to go, and they accomplished great things for God. And yet he told them, greater things than these shall you do. The local church today has the power of God and the process God has given us that is huge. It's massive. And yet we have to work together. Turn to Matthew 28 as we finish up. Matthew 28. Just before Jesus ascended into heaven, he commissioned his disciples and all his future disciples. In fact, it was his last step of administration while on the earth. And everybody, if you've been to church at all, you probably have heard these verses. Look at Matthew 28, 18. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. He gave them a direct commission. So Jesus is this example for us in ruling. Let's close this morning over in Hebrews chapter 13. And if you have a Bible, I hope you'll turn over there. And if you don't, look on with somebody close to you. Because I want to show you what happens with the fruits of scriptural, spirit-filled leadership. I'm not talking about abusive leadership. I'm not talking about somebody who is trying to usurp the Holy Spirit in your life. But there is a reason why God says these things in Hebrews 13. There is a method that God uses to improve our lives. Look at verse number 7. I want you to note the wording. Remember them which have the rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow, considering the end of their conversation. So there's a message to all of us to say, listen, there are leaders in the local assembly that you should remember. You should pay attention to what they have to say, not because they're any better than you, but because they're speaking the word of God. And because the path thereon leads the right direction. The end of their lifestyle is a good place to be. And that's why we do it. Look at verse 17. Oh, we get to this obey word. Obey them that have the rule over you. And submit yourselves. Now look at why. For they watch for your souls. 
as they that must give account, that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. You know, there's nothing more miserable in the local church than to have to try to lead someone who doesn't want to be led. There's just not. There's nothing more miserable than to try to give advice to someone who doesn't want your advice. Spiritual, scriptural advice. Not talking about what color car you should buy. I'm talking about literal life direction issues. They watch for your souls. Look at verse 24. Salute all them that have the rule over you and all the saints. They of Italy salute you. Don't get hung up here on the word ruling. You know what it's referring to in this passage? It's referring to a guide. A guide is there to help you stay on the path of God's purpose for your life. That's what the gift of ruling is for. It's that God wants us to have a guide. He gave us the scriptures to be a guide. He gave us the spirit to be a guide. And he gave us people within our own assembly to be guides for us. It's a gift that God has given to us. You know, there's no gift that God's given to us like the gift of Jesus Christ. The gift of eternal life. And if you're here today and you've never received that gift, and you've never experienced what eternal life is, I hope you'll do it this morning. Let's bow in a closing prayer. Our Father, we thank you today for your gifts in our lives. And Lord, I'm sure that there are many people in this room today with this spiritual gift. And I pray that they would discern how to use that gift. I pray that you would also work in each heart. And if there be those today who do not know Jesus Christ as their Savior, I pray that after the service that they would come and take my hand and we could lead them to an individual who could show them from the Word of God how they can know that this morning. Pray that you would work in our hearts and our lives, that we might be one body and one spirit to serve you in a harmony that's beautiful. We might serve you with our lives. We ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed.